The other business uh, matter is that I have this cup up here, and I'm not a White Sox fan, and so I wouldn't want you to get the wrong impression about me, okay? Um, that's probably more serious than anything else, okay? I, I am not a White Sox fan. It was a free cup. That's all that is, okay? I'm still a Cardinals fan, so I, you know, I haven't uh, apostatized in that area of my life either, so uh, still on the straight and narrow with St. Louis on that one, okay? Well, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. That's where we are today is Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 18 is what we're going to be covering, and if you have your bulletin, you'll see inside of there, there are some sermon notes that you can use to follow along with us, and the title of today's message is A Curse and a Blessing. So despite what you may think, Galatians 3 does not start talking about parenting in this passage, um, but the curse and the blessing refers to something other than your vipers and diapers that you got running around your house, okay? So Galatians chapter 3, we're going to cover verses 10 to 18, but before we jump in, why don't we uh, go ahead and pray and get our hearts in the right place before we unpack the Word together. Father, we... Thank you so much for the time that we have together today, this morning. We ask that as we look into your word, your word that you've divinely communicated through mortal men, the word uh, that your spirit prompted men to write, this word that is not of any man's own interpretation, but this word that is truly your words to us, God, we're thankful. And we ask that this morning, as we look into this text, that you would just give us a blessed time together, that it would be a sweet time of fellowship, listening to what you have said in your Word and really discovering the deep truths behind that, that it would be life-changing. For some, it might need to be a huge life change. For others, it might just be a change, a small change in, in how we live. But God, give us that insight, give us that wisdom that we'd be able to see how this applies to us and how this changes the way we think about you and think about others how these deep realities of the gospel truly, awesomely, actually change us. God, give us a great time together. And Lord, I ask that with the uh, fire going on this week, the Coal Hollow fire and all the people who are working on that and the fires in California as well, thousands and thousands of people who are risking their lives to protect other people's lives, a reflection of the image of God. God, we ask that you would protect them that you would give them effectiveness uh, as, they, as they seek to stop these raging fires, but that most importantly, through all of it, everyone involved would understand that this is the impact that sin has on the world, that we live in a fallen place where there is death and disease and dying, there is deteriorating, there is uh, just a fire consuming, going places where we don't want it to go. It's the result of the fall. And God, have that be a reminder to us as believers and have it to be just this huge message that leads people to the gospel for all the people who don't know you. God, we ask that you would, um, like I said, give them effectiveness, that uh, these fires would subside, but that through that we would glorify you and that we wouldn't celebrate man or that we wouldn't celebrate chance and random acts, but that we would celebrate you and your kindness and your grace toward us. Lord, as we get going this morning and we look at uh, the message you have for us in Galatians 3, I ask that I wouldn't get in the way. You would keep me out of the way. I am a sinner by nature and by choice. I am unworthy. But God, you make us all worthy. Make us all able to hear this morning that we would understand your gospel more and more. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hmm. Love hearing that. It's good. Sometimes it can be hard to know what battles to fight in life, can't it? You're at the Thanksgiving table and someone brings up an opinion that is contrary to your opinion about politics or something like that, and you have to make a decision in that moment. Do I fight this battle or do I not fight this battle? And some of you have chosen to fight battles that you shouldn't have fought, right? Who's been there? (laughs) Uh, Foot in mouth, you know, some of that stuff going on, and uh, you just went down a road you should never turn down, okay? That road wasn't for you. That was a private drive, and now you have to deal with the consequences, okay? Well, it can be hard to know what battles to fight. Uh, Even literally speaking, in war, governments and soldiers are all involved in war and trying to make decisions on how we feel about fighting and and killing uh, people of other nations. And that can be just, I mean, totally difficult. I can't imagine being someone who's to vote as to whether or not we should go to war with another nation. That is just a weighty, weighty decision. And I actually, I found a letter uh, from the Civil War. Uh, A soldier for the North, he was writing back to his wife, and I, I found this paragraph about his his conviction that this is a battle that he should be fighting. I just found it really interesting. He writes, My very dear wife, the indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. Unless I should not be able to write you again, I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I shall be no more. Wish we could write like that still. What's up with us? Our movement may be one of a few days' duration and full of pleasure. And it may be one of severe conflict and death to me. He says, quote, not my will, but thine, O God, be done, end quote. If it is necessary that I should fall on the battlefield for my country, I am ready. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged. And my courage does not halt or falter. I know how American civilization now leans upon the triumph of the government and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and suffering of the revolution. I am willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government and to pay that debt. That's conviction, isn't it? Willing to lay down all my joys in this life. He understood the task in front of him and the the consequences of going to battle, the possibilities. He understood that in that letter. And while Paul is writing to the Galatians, where we are this morning, this book we've been going through, this letter to believers in the region of Galatia, Paul's writing with a similar conviction about what battles to fight. He's not a soldier supporting the government looking at killing his enemies, but he's an apostle who's supporting the gospel looking at minimizing, diminishing, and getting rid of false teaching. And he writes with that conviction. He could, he could have sat back and he could have thought with this issue going on in Galatia, eh, you know, man, if I get involved, it's just going to blow up. Um, it's going to be pretty stressful. It'll work itself out. You know, I'm just going to stay out of it. He could have said that, right? He could have backed up from it and just said, um, I'll send this guy and he'll go and take care of it. Or I'll let somebody else bring the message of correction to them. 
But he didn't do that. Paul saw this issue as so serious, this issue of people who wanted to bring the law in and mix it with the gospel and say, yeah, believe in Jesus, but you also have to keep a moral law. He saw that issue as so serious that he should take his time to write all these words to them and use what is sometimes pretty inflammatory language, like in chapter 3, verse 1, where he calls them foolish that we looked at last week. He saw it as so serious that he could say that with confidence. You're being foolish, and here's why. And he spends all kinds of time writing this letter because he saw this issue as worthy of fighting for. And what he says today in today's passage, starting in verse 10, trying to express to them the issue of going under the law, moving out of grace and going under the law, he says, "...for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse." For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. There are some words that are used not just in this section, but in this entire chapter that we would do well to define. We looked at defining faith and works last week. This week, I want to define curses and blessings, because you read these words and you have an idea of what curse means, to be cursed or to be blessed. You have an idea what that means. We need to align it with the Word of God. And the first thing that you need to know is that both curses and blessings come from God Himself, all right? The root of curses and the root of blessings is from God. God Himself. And it's clearly seen from the start of the Bible. You hardly have to get out of the first 10 chapters of Genesis to define blessings and curses. For instance, we'll start with the good one first, blessing. It's the first action that God made after creating human beings. Did you know that? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, male and female, He created them in His image. 26, 27, verse 28, He blessed them. Semicolon moves on. He blessed them. First action God did when He had male and female in His image, He blessed them. If you think about the Abrahamic covenant that we've been discussing here lately as Paul has brought up Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant says simply, okay, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. That's Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And this was an unconditional covenant that God made with Abraham, meaning that Abraham doesn't have to uphold his end of the deal for the covenant to, con- to remain, and we'll look at that today. But it's unconditional, and blessing and cursing are at the center of that promise, of that covenant made to Abraham from God. Throughout the book of Genesis, you see that Abraham blesses his son Isaac, and Isaac blesses his son Jacob, and Jacob blesses his sons. Blessing goes through the lineage where In some form or fashion, men are able to participate in this blessing and to continue the blessing of God on to the next generation. And then the last example I want to bring up to you for blessing is the law. 
And we're talking so poorly, or not poorly, we're talking so antagonistically against the law in this passage, but the law was actually a vessel of blessing to the people who kept it. If you read Psalm 1, for instance, the very first psalm in the book of Psalms, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Blessed is the man who diligently keeps God's law and and keeps His commands. The law, that covenant from God to man, unlike the covenant that God made with Abraham, is conditional. So you think about the covenant made with Abraham, no matter what Abraham did or didn't do, God is going to keep His covenant with Abraham. You think about the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of the law given to man, well, now the ball is in our court. If we keep the law, if we obey the commands, if we take our delight in the law of the Lord, we're blessed. But if we don't, if we're antagonistic toward the law, then we're under a curse. We'll look at that more later today. Cursing starts early in Genesis as well. Chapter 3, we have blessing in chapter 1, Adam and Eve, they're blessed. Chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin, and cursing comes into the world. Not long. We made it two chapters. Way to go, humanity. Uh, we, We were under a blessing for two chapters. But in response to the fall, God curses the serpent. He will now have to move around on his belly. It's part of the curse. And for Adam, the ground is cursed. The ground is cursed because of him. He'll have to work thorn and thistles and sweat and blood because the ground is now cursed. We even see in the flood that part of the the impact of the ground being cursed is that there was a flood that destroyed man. Chapter 4 of Genesis, Cain was cursed. He killed his brother Abel, and Cain was given a curse by God. Chapter 9, Canaan was cursed in the book of Genesis. You get, get the picture here? We don't have to get very far out of the Bible to see blessings and cursings. And of course, as I was just saying, The law itself was a vessel for not just blessing, but for cursing as well. And that's not because the law is bad, okay? The law is holy and just and good. That's what Paul says in Romans 7. The law is holy and just and good. So we don't need to look at the law as like, oh man, this cursed evil thing that is just gross, okay? We don't need to look at it that way. We need to look at the law as being divinely given from God that it's holy. It displays His holiness and how perfect He demands people should be. It's just, meaning that God has a system to be fair in His dealings with men. It's not just willy-nilly, well, this person gets to go to heaven and that person doesn't. The law actually makes it very specific, and it's good. It displays God's goodness and His character, that He is eternally good. It's holy and just and good. So for today, if we were to make really truncated definitions of blessing and cursing, we could say that blessing is Life and favor given from God. Life and favor given from God. And cursing, just the opposite, is death and condemnation given by God. So if you're cursed by God, you're not getting life and favor, you're getting death and condemnation. And at some level, and this is just going to take years of study, you're just going to have to come to your conclusion on how all this works. At some level, Men and women are able to participate in blessings and cursings. Somehow, some way, men and women are able to participate in blessing and cursing others. There are several passages in the Bible that we could look to, but this isn't an expose on on blessing and cursing. This is Galatians 3, and that's as far as we're going today, okay, on uh, blessing and cursing. 
But before we unpack what Paul has to say, I want to show you Jeremiah 17. You can turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 17, back in the middle of your Old Testament, okay, well, second half of your Old Testament. It's between the book of Psalms and the New Testament. Jeremiah chapter 17, and we're going to look at just three verses here. And what we'll see is that this Old Testament prophet was teaching the same thing that Paul goes on to teach to the Galatians, that Paul's teaching to the Galatian people is an old teaching, okay? If the Jewish people would have understood rightly these words of Jeremiah, they wouldn't have been pestering the Galatians, but they didn't understand these words. Jeremiah 17, most of us know verse 9, by the way, verse 9 the heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? We know that verse. Look at verses 5 through 7 with me. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Okay, talking about blessing and cursing. Look what's at the heart of cursing here. Trusting in mankind, making flesh what man can do, his strength as opposed to God being his strength and his heart turning away from Yahweh, the Lord. It says in verse 6, He will be like a bush in the desert and will not see prosperity, or will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Nothing wrong with a land of salt, right? <laughs> Cursing upon that one. But look at verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh, the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Verse 8, I'll take you one more. He will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear the heat when it comes. Blessing and cursing centered around who you trust in. Isn't that amazing? If you trust in God, the one true God, the one who has called you to His side, the one who created you, the one who has a plan of redemption for you, if you trust in Him as opposed to trusting in yourself, as opposed to trusting in the works of the flesh, all the things that you can do to perform for God and for others, if you put your trust in Him alone, you are blessed. You're given life. You're given favor from God. But if you trust in what you can do, if you trust in your ability to obey, your ability to perform, your ability to even do good stuff like teach, your ability to parent, your ability, your skills, your knowledge, your, your savviness, then you're cursed, God says, because God is your strength. You are not your strength. God is your strength. Blessing and cursing right there at the center of that. So now, revisiting Galatians 3, verse 10 Paul's echoing these same thoughts. For as many are as of, and that's a, or as are of rather, it's kind of a weird phrasing. But as many people who trust in, you could say, works of the law are under a curse, just like Jeremiah was saying. And then he quotes Deuteronomy, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Man's problem is that we are unable to perform. And the law says perform. All right, if you were to break it down, the simplest ways of phrasing it, and we're going to get more into this next week, in next week's passage, but the problem is that the law says do, 
and we are unable to do what the law says, okay? There are important words to highlight in here as well. Cursed, of course, there in verse 10. Also, everyone is an important word, and all is another important word, just a little bitty word, but it's very important because the law is all or nothing. Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 27 in this, which says the same thing. If you're unable to do all of them, you are under a curse. In Leviticus 18.5, he quotes, uh, in verse 12, he says, "...the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them." Law living is a lifestyle. And everybody who desires to follow a law has to understand this. You think of the United States. We're under a law, right? Uh, Many, many laws out there. I would be scared to know how many laws there are out there because there are definitely too many, all right? But there are lots of laws out there. I would venture to guess that only a very small percentage applies to regular people like you and me who go about our lives doing our thing. Yeah, speed limit, we have to obey. Um, You know, don't you know, ruin your neighbor's stuff, you know, okay, the simple stuff. But then there are way more complex laws that we really don't even have to think about. I mean, speed limit's probably the one you think about far more than anything else, unless you're involved in some insider trading, in which case you should talk to me after the service, okay? <laughs> but, uh, but, but we don't have to think about a lot of those. So probably if you were to count how many laws you, you typically have to have in mind, I would guess it's fewer than 10, I would guess. Now, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible that outline the law of God, 613 laws in there, 613. And there wasn't just like a few that they had to memorize and the rest didn't really have to do with them. They were for, you know, all the politicians to pay attention to, like we have here. Israel had 613 laws that they had to know. Do you realize that the devoted Israelite boys would memorize the Torah, the first five books? They would memorize it. They knew the law. They knew the law of the Lord, and hundreds and hundreds of laws applied to them on a daily basis. It was a lifestyle for them. And that's the way it is when we start talking about God. God is not like the government. The government gives us leeway. I was just talking to a police officer the other day, and I said, okay, so tell me, can I go five over, you know? Was that wrong? I said it anyway. I'm just being honest with you. Can I go five over, or are you going to pull me over? And uh, I won't tell you his answer, you know, just to protect the, uh, the police officers. Um, but, but there's leeway with, with police officers, aren't there? How many times have we been speeding and didn't get pulled over? And we, whoo, thank goodness, right? Well, thank the police officer because he's the one who's not following the law. We get some leeway. But with God, there is no leeway. Because if God truly is holy and perfectly just, perfectly just, which is what we want when it comes to sinners like Hitler, which is what we want when it comes to sinners like people we just dislike. If He is perfectly just, there is no leeway, no leeway at all. And there's no system in His law for earning forgiveness from Him. So you realize as you look to follow the law, you're unable to perform because you're a fallen human being. And if God is perfectly just, what you justly deserve is punishment. And if you zoom into that more, you realize that God is eternal, meaning that every offense against this eternal God is an eternal offense, and an eternal offense requires an eternal punishment. 
Because if God is eternal creator with eternal purposes, with eternal love for you, now we love it, we, we, make, we make a decision on Jesus and we get eternal life based on one decision, but we don't like it when we think, well, we sinned once and we shouldn't get eternal punishment based on just one decision. Well, you got eternal life based on one decision. Think about eternal punishment that comes from eternal God. That's just. It's holy. It's good. Not in the sense that we should want people to perish, but it's good in the sense that we have a God that upholds His law. I'm way off of my notes now. So this aspect of the law brings condemnation to all people. And this is what happens to legalistic people when they command that you follow a law, that you need to follow these rules. What they actually end up doing is teaching you the doctrine of total depravity, don't they? (laughs) They teach you that you are unable to perform. If you're not convinced that you're unable to perform, try following a law perfectly, any of them. Pick any law out there, try following it perfectly, okay? You'll realize then that you're not able to do it. And if you were to put onto yourself 613 laws from the Torah, you would realize even more, there's not a chance. You learn by being a legalist that it's impossible to be a perfect legalist. It's the lesson that you learn from the law, that no one is perfect, no one is able to perform. We naturally rebel against God's commands. And the reason is, and this is an interesting thing, the reason that we're rebellious against God's commands is because we're not righteous. Now, you might think, well, that's a result of being sinful. I'm a sinner because I sinned. Well, you're actually a sinner before you sin. That's why you sinned, okay? Um, if you weren't a sinner, you wouldn't have sinned. But because in your heart there was already a disposition to rebel against God, there was something already flawed about who you were, you found sin enticing. You found that, that little whisper that says, kick back against God to be like a good idea. You thought, hey, yeah, that's sweet. I want more of that. Well, why did, why did you think that? It's because you were already in sin. And then as you sin and prove yourself to be a sinner, it just kind of feeds back in. It's like this feedback loop. You sin because you're a sinner, and you're a sinner because you sin. So it just kind of feeds into each other. And this is what the Judaizers of Paul's time didn't understand. They thought in a different way, that maybe we're all neutral, and maybe that it's up to us, that God puts us in a state where we can decide to be righteous or we can decide to be sinners, and it's just up to us. But again, just try to be a perfect legalist. You can't. You can't do it. It's because you're already a sinner. You're already unrighteous. But there's good news. Paul says we can receive righteousness. Verse 11, he says, no one is justified by the law before God. That's evident. And then he quotes a minor prophet named Habakkuk and says, the righteous man shall live by faith. And what Paul is doing is he's setting up this idea that faith is the antithesis of the law. You can't have faith and the law working together because you can't be justified by the law. That's evident. But you can be justified by faith. It's the antithesis of the law. People are justified apart from the law. And that's great news. If you've been taught to earn your salvation, if you've been taught to work as hard as you can, work, 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 because it's by your works that God will recognize that you're worthy, If you've been taught that, this is great news for you because you've probably already realized that you're jacked up inside, right? (laughs) You've come to that conclusion. Even if you still look shiny on the outside, on the inside, you're just like this old rusty barbed wire 
dirty, sinful, meh, right? You're a mess. Well, the great news is that you're justified apart from the law. That filthiness that's in your heart gets cleaned up, gets replaced, gets born again apart from the law. It's by faith. The one made righteous by faith is then to live by it. And Paul's saying this to the Galatians because that's them. They've been made righteous by faith. The Galatians have have believed in Jesus. They've heard the message of the gospel. They've accepted Jesus, as we would commonly say in our vernacular. They've bent the knee to Christ, and now they've gone back to works, thinking that works somehow will make them even better. And Paul says, you were made righteous by your faith. Now live by that faith. Don't turn again to works. And that's the whole point of Galatians 2.20, that verse that I'll probably keep referencing over and over again as we go through the book. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We're saved by that faith and we're to live by that faith. And it's faith in Jesus, the one who became a curse for us. How do we get free from that law? How are we freed? How is there another way besides performance? Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was cursed on our behalf. He bore the curse that we deserve from sin. He didn't do anything that He was deserving of a curse, but He was on the cross bearing our curse. Death, condemnation from God, deserved because we earned it, didn't we? If our works say anything about us, it's that we deserve to be cursed. Well, Jesus took that curse away. He didn't become a sinner. Jesus wasn't a sinner, but He became a curse for us. He became sin for us. He became the object of the Father's holy, just, and good wrath on the cross. If His law is holy and just and good, His wrath against those who go against His law is also holy and just and good. And as Jesus was there as a curse for us, our curse that He was bearing, He received upon Himself the holy, just, good wrath of the Father that we deserved. We deserved that eternal punishment. We deserved all that wrath to be focused on us because of what we earned for ourselves. But Jesus took it upon Himself. We read in passages like Isaiah 53.10, the thoughts behind this amazing gospel that it pleased the Father to crush Him. It pleased the Father to do that, to pour out His holy and just and good wrath. It pleased Him to do that. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. He became sin. He became a curse who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And of course, Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 21 that just simply says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. They didn't have crucifixion back then. They had a different way of of publicly displaying those who received the death penalty. But the idea is there. The one who is publicly displayed as a criminal, a rebel against God, he's the cursed one. 
So as people stood around, as Jesus was crucified and looked at what was happening, they could actually rightly say, the cursed one. It's just, He wasn't cursed for anything He did. He was cursed for everything that we did. The anointed one became the cursed one on the cross, in our place for our sins, making payment for our sins. Again, in verse 13, it says, He redeemed us from the curse. This word, redeem or redemption, it has a lot of historical context in Paul's day that's helpful to point out. Whenever there was a battle going on between a couple of tribes or a couple of nations, whenever one tribe won out, they would hold on to some of the people, some of the useful people. For instance, uh, some of the poor people who may have been strong, they'd want to hang on to them and make them slaves. They'd want to make them slaves in their tribe or in their nation. But some of the more wealthy individuals, people who their families would want back, they would hang on to them for a ransom. They would hang on to those people and demand that they receive some kind of a payment to release those people back to their tribe or back to their nation. And that process was called redemption. It was a ransom that was offered up for the redemption of another person. Paul had this in mind when he used these words. It's how these words were used in this original context that we were held captive by the law. We were under the curse of the law. We were prisoners of our own sin. And Jesus offered the ransom. He made the payment that releases us from the law, that brings us out from under the curse of the law, to be His, to be God's forevermore, to belong to God forever. Jesus ransomed us. And the purpose is outlined in verse 14. Remember, anytime you see in order that or so that, it shows purpose. Why did Jesus ransom us? In order that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This is all part of fulfilling the promise made to Abraham that in you all the nations will be blessed. That's what God said to Abraham. And in Christ, we see how that plays out. Christ died in our behalf that through faith, not by works, but through faith, we might tap into that blessing. We might receive that blessing that God promised. The Spirit, every believer gets the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is 100% God. You're not getting a fraction of God. You're not getting God Jr. or God Light. Okay? You're getting God Himself in you, living in you, working, guiding, illuminating Scripture to you. You get the forgiveness of sins. When you place your faith in Jesus, you get the forgiveness of sins. And those sins don't go into some holding tank and that are kept there until you mess up again and then they all pour back out on you. Those sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. And you can't figure that out, all right? So as your mind's going there and you're thinking, well, if I had a compass and... No, okay? You can't figure that out. They're gone forever. Past, present, future sins. You're washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. Your sins are forgiven. You're given unity with God. You have a relationship with Him, and no one can take that away. The blessing has come to you through faith. But those who place themselves under a law are just condemning themselves. 
They're proving their own unworthiness, and they're trying to fix it with more of their own unworthiness. But we who are of faith, we found freedom, haven't we? We have found true redemption. We have found grace. We are once for all free from cursing. We receive no curses from God. We are once for all blessed. We have received a blessing that no one can take away. It's in Christ. And as the blessed ones who were once under a curse, we are now called to go out into the world and bless those who curse us. Look at these words from Jesus in Luke chapter 6. In Luke 6, Jesus said to His disciples some amazing words about blessing and cursing. I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. You're the blessed, blessed ones if you're in Christ. You're blessed people. All the other people, the ones outside of Christ, they're under a curse just like you were. How do you show them gospel love? How do you live out your faith? Pray for them. Bless them. Love on them. Serve them. Share with them. Prioritize truth in that relationship. Be a blessing. Don't write them off. Don't say, idiots, you guys are never going to get saved. I hope you would all die. (laughs) We laugh, but it's in our hearts, isn't it? It's ugly. Bless those. From the heart, bless them. Don't curse them, but bless them. We're able to do that because of our salvation. Well, Paul now gives them more details regarding this promise of redemption. That's verses 15 through 18. I'll read the whole thing, and then we'll go back through it. Paul says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. My goodness, did you follow me? Were you with me? Oh, lots of words in there, okay? Big picture. We'll just go big picture and then get, get down into the nitty-gritty, all right? The big picture is this. God made a promise to Abraham over 430 years later. It's a little ambiguous why Paul said 430. But over 430 years later, the law came about. That law does not change the promise that God made to Abraham. And that promise was some of the things I was just talking about, the blessing that would come to all the nations through Him. But you know what the other promise is? Galatians chapter 15, verse 6. You don't have to turn there. But Abraham believed God, and it was rendered to him or counted to him as righteousness. He was given the gift of righteousness by having faith in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. The law that came hundreds of years later, centuries later, that doesn't change that promise. That's the big picture of what Paul's saying right here. Okay, or as to quote uh, Leon Morris, one of the commentators I'm reading through this, the law is too late, all right? That's a simple way of putting it. The law is too late. But the Judaizers went wrong in their timeline. The Judaizers also went wrong 
and they're, na- they're thinking of the nature of God and man. The Judaizers believed. These are people who may or may not have been Christians. These are people who had Jewish roots who believed in the law of Moses. Their thinking was, God gave us this law. Sure, it was after Abraham, but God gave us this law to perform. They thought in their minds that God wanted performance from them, that that's what God desired. Even though they had the prophets like Jeremiah that said, don't trust in your ability to perform, but trust in God, they still had in their thinking that God demands performance. And they also had in their thinking that man is able to perform. And that's where you go wrong. All right, I'm speaking to you guys this morning, sitting here in the chairs. That's where you go wrong, whether you claim to be a Christian or not. Okay, as someone who's not a Christian, you might think that, well, there's, there's a law that I must follow. I climb the staircase. My good deeds outweigh my bad, etc., etc. I'm able to do that. God expects that from me. That's how I'm made right with God. It's not true. God never had a system of performance to earn forgiveness, ever, ever. And for the Christian, you might be thinking, well, God's going to be grumpy with me if I don't do what I'm supposed to do. So even though I'm in Christ, I still have these moments of sin, and God's just mad at me. He's upset with me until I get back to performing the way I should. That's not true. You guys got to, we got to take our minds out of that. We're so entrenched with the law in the Western Hemisphere. We just understand the world through the law, and we think, perform, perform, perform. God is not in the performance business, all right? God is not a talent agent. He's looking for the best performers. God doesn't think that way. God is outside of performance, and you're made right with God by trusting in Him alone, not trusting in yourself. When we trust in what He has done, the finished work of Christ, when we realize there's nothing left for us to do, when we really, genuinely, truly, once for all, give Him our life, we repent and say, I don't want that lifestyle of sin. I'm turning from that. And sin includes performance, okay? Sin includes legalism. I'm turning from that, and I'm trusting in you, and you do with my life whatever you want. That's what God's looking for. The one who says no to my own works, no to my own efforts, and yes to what God has done. Well, I'm just going to scratch the last third of my sermon. I keep doing this. I need to get better at it. It's Communion Sunday, so we need more time. I want, you, I want to take you back to verse 13 real quick and just point out two simple little words. Galatians 3.13, a simple little, little phrase. It says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Those are the two words, those two little words. He became a curse for us us. Perhaps it's the most striking part of that whole verse. I mean, it's amazing. It's mind-blowing that the perfect Son of God who has existed from all eternity as holy creator became a curse, all right? That's pretty mind-blowing. But to add to that, it was for us. And what you're allowed to do when you see that in Scripture, you can put your name in there. Having become a curse for Jeremy, put it in there. He became a curse for you. As I said earlier, the Jews, as they stood around, the Romans, as they actually performed the crucifixion and the Jews standing there, 
they could all rightly look at the cross and say, there's a cursed one, there's a cursed man. And they were right. He was cursed for you on your behalf. He was cursed because of sin, their sin and ours. And that's what we remember when we do communion. All right, I want to take you to one last passage. It's 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. We take communion together. We remember the death of Christ together because of the unity that we have in the gospel. It's 1 Corinthians 10, starting at verse 14. Paul writes to the church in Corinth saying, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That verse right there will take you a lifetime to understand, okay? Flee from idolatry. Verse 15, I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is this not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is this not the bread which we break a sharing a sharing in the body of Christ. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So in communion, we're declaring our unity in this gospel together. The whole purpose of doing this is to show that we all believe in the sacrificial death of Jesus for us, became a curse for us. So here's what we'll do. In just a minute, we're going to play a song, and I'm going to set up the table, uh, you know, so you can access the bread and the juice. And as the song plays, you can come up and get your own, but don't consume yet. Hold on to it. And uh, if someone needs help, make sure you help somebody to get the bread and the juice, okay? But hang on to it until the end of the song, and at the end of the song, I'll speak and we'll pray together, and then we'll partake together, okay? This is for all people who have trusted in the final sacrifice of Jesus. Whether you did that 30 years ago or 30 seconds ago, all right, this is for you. You don't have to be a member of our church. You don't have to tell me your name. You don't have to pass a test, any of that. Have you trusted in Christ? That's the only, that's the only barrier that there is between you and partaking with us because we're doing it in unity, declaring the same gospel. So come up as you're led while the song plays. i 